This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Weissman. Today we look at Chicago politics, a possible life after Rahm Emanuel with Jacobin editor Michael Utrecht, and at Puerto Rico with Chloe Watlington. Michael Utrecht cut his political teeth in Chicago with Rahm Emanuel at the helm for literally the whole time Micah has been active, writing, interviewing, and reporting. This week, Rahm Emanuel announced he won't seek a third term, even though he says he's certain he would win one. Micah's latest piece in Jacobin Magazine is called Today and Forever, Rahm Emanuel is Garbage. We'll get his take on why Rahm Emanuel is withdrawing, and more importantly, what kind of post-Rahm Chicago is now possible, and what will be Mayor 1%'s legacy. Then we talked to freelance writer Chloe Watlington, who's been writing about Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria for The Baffler and Teen Vogue. Chloe looks at the bizarre attempts to reboot the economy that profess to solve problems that aren't the problem and the response from labor, as well as student strikes against cuts to education at all levels. There's a pattern here, and Chloe helps unravel it for us. All this on Jacobin Radio, coming up. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I am so pleased to have Micah Utrecht with us. He is actually in transit and pulled over to talk to us today. Micah is the managing editor of Jacobin. He's also the author of Strike for America, the Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. That was put out as a Jacobin book, but published by Verso. And he's also a grad student at McGill University. His latest piece in Jacobin Magazine is called Today and Forever. Rahm Emanuel is garbage. And we're going to talk about that today. I should just start by saying that Micah Utrecht is to Rahm Emanuel, what Hunter Thompson was to Richard Nixon. And in this piece, Today and Forever, Rahm Emanuel is Garbage, it's a highly personal but political account of what it meant to live through, I guess, the first uh, two terms of Rahm Emanuel. And we're here today to explore the reasons that Rahm Emanuel is declining to run what he said he is certain he could win, a third term as mayor of Chicago. So we want to kind of look at what's behind his withdrawal from the race, what he has done, why he is hated, what his legacy will likely be, and what the difference is now in the political situation now that he says he's not going to be running. So with all of that, Micah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just start with the obvious. Why do you think Rahm Emanuel is not going to run? And let's just say that the stated reason was that he was going to take time out to be with his family, but then in the next breath, it is stated in all of you know the Chicago Tribune and other accounts that he just dropped off his youngest child at university. So it seems like for those of us who actually do have families, a really weird time to say you're going to spend time with your family. Also, any time a politician says that they just want to spend time with their family, you can usually guess there's something on something else going on there. Right. Um, this announcement comes after uh, two terms at which Rahm Emanuel has been established in the city of Chicago as Mayor One Percent, a mayor who his primary allegiance is to the city's wealthy, and it also comes just ahead of literally a day ahead of the trial for Jason Van Dyke, the Chicago police officer who shot and killed a 17-year-old black teenager, Laquan McDonald, 16 times. And there was an enormous cover-up that went from the level of the rank-file police officer all the way up to City Hall and everybody in between. So it was clear that this cover-up meant some real problems for Rahm and his administration. If you remember, 
2015 when he ran for re-election the first time. He was surprisingly forced into a runoff by Chuy Garcia, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of progressive candidate who was challenging him. And no one really saw that coming. And that was before these revelations about Laquan McDonald came out. And so there was really no way that he was not going to, at the very least, be pushed into a runoff again in, in a re-election next year or worse. I think that, combined with the years of organizations like the Chicago Teachers Union fighting him tooth and nail every step of the way, a vibrant mental health movement, really a, a broad anti-austerity movement in Chicago had been fighting him on everything that he tried to do as mayor. And that, combined with the Laquan McDonald case, really did not bode well for his prospects of running again next year. I want to go backwards. I mean, I definitely want us to get into this glorious struggle of the Chicago teachers and what the outcome was and its importance, especially given the moment that we're living in right now. But let's start with, you know, what you just mentioned, and that is just this week, is it Jason Van Dyke, the trial opens on the killing of Laquan McDonald, in which he emptied 16 bullets, I believe, into him. And it was conveniently or inconveniently covered up for more than a year and caused a gigantic scandal. We started out by saying, you know, what's really behind Rahm Emanuel saying that he's not going to run. Are people in Chicago speculating that there's some gigantic scandal about to erupt as this trial opens or maybe not even related to it? Well, that would be speculation at this point. But what's clear is that even if there is no new information that is broken about this case in the span of the trial, which given the fact that it will be a full-on trial, it's hard to imagine that there won't be all kinds of new revelations that come out. But even given what we already know, it's an enormous scandal. It was 13 months between when the shooting actually happened and when the city finally released the tape of Laquan McDonald being shot these 16 times. There are documents that show that officials in City Hall, if not Rahm Emanuel himself, knew that this happened very shortly after the shooting took place. And it's very clear to anybody who takes more than a glancing look at this that there was this massive attempt to hold off on releasing uh, this video. I mean, the reporters had to sue the city over a long period of time to get the tape released, and it, it was suppressed for this long because if it had dropped in October 2014, that was right in the middle of re-election season for Rahm Emanuel. And if it had dropped right when it happened, uh, we all can guess what might have happened to Rahm Emanuel during his re-election. So just the bare facts that we already have alone it should be enough of a, of a scandal. And it's widely acknowledged everywhere in the city. There's even sort of centrist or even right-leaning uh, columnists, for example, in the Chicago Tribune, would acknowledge that there is a top-to-bottom cover-up of this case. And so, again, just real hot water before any new revelations come out in the, in the Van Dyke trial. Your piece in Jacobin, Today and Forever, Rahm Emanuel is Garbage, as I mentioned, kind of weaves the personal into the political. And I want to go over the political, but I also want to have the listeners understand your personal sort of political development under Rahm Emanuel, because he's been there since 2011. And you've been there the whole time and been, as, as you say, in countless protests against him. And you also mentioned, Micah Utrecht, that he is Mayor 1%. And everybody knows that. And I have to say that prior to becoming Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel served in both Clinton and Obama administrators. And he was also in Congress in between. 
nobody really liked the guy. He was nasty. He's known as the guy with all the expletives. But as the insider who gets things done and knows how to, you know, work in Congress and strong arm and get his his agenda through. So given all of that, and he's Mayor 1%, how would you characterize his terms so far as mayor of Chicago? He really is a neoliberal politician par excellence in terms of the regime of austerity that he carried out in the city. I think that the two main things that he will be remembered for are the Laquan McDonald cover-up and his fights with the Chicago Teachers Union and his broader attacks on public education in the city. I've been looking very hard to try to find some kind of positive remembrance (laughs) from somebody, some positive retrospective on his two terms as mayor, and I've yet to find one. I earlier today read... Well, the one that came from Crane's Chicago Business, which is the paper of the city's business class. Mm -hmm. And even they have very little nice to say about him. And even they are spinning this kind of tale of two cities narrative that Rahm really sought to uh, shore up downtown business interests and did not do a whole lot for the rest of Chicago, working class and poor Chicago, which can be seen in the epidemic of violence that we have in the city with an incredible number of gun-related homicides in the city, you know, gun-related homicides, of course, that come from the lack of jobs, lack of investment in those communities. I, after a recent spate of violence over the summer, Rom released a statement that something to the effect of there's a real cultural, you know, a kind of culture of poverty type argument about why all this was happening in poor black neighborhoods in the city. And he's going back to these old cultural poverty, frankly, racist, tropes about why Mm. violence happens rather than (laughs) it being about poverty. Going right back to Patrick Moynihan, really, (laughs) and the black family, for those who don't know it. Well, that's all just to say that not even the city's business class, whose agenda that Emanuel was carrying out during his two terms as mayor, has very much nice to say about him on the occasion of his deciding out to run for re-election. So I think that almost universally his, his tenure as mayor will be remembered as one that it was characterized by giveaways to big corporations, attacks on the public sector, austerity, cuts for the city's public sector, and and not a whole lot, uh, but more pain and misery for the city's working class. Okay, well, so let's go back to that, because you said that he's, you know, pretty universally hated. You really looked hard to find nice things being said about him. And yet, uh, Rahm Emanuel kind of almost brags that should he still be in the race, he's certain he would win. You also mentioned, Micah, you checked that Chewy Garcia gave him a run for the money. We had Troy LaRavier on here a couple of times. He is a former teacher and principal who, you know, made education the center point of his campaign that he said he was opening up against Rahm Emanuel. Is this the case that Rahm Emanuel is just, uh, you know, a braggadocio, that he really thinks so highly of himself that he dismisses any form of opposition to him? Or is it the case that they're so far, I guess, out on left field, these opponents, that he has something, that Rahm Emanuel is right about that? Well, his challenger in 2015 was Chuy Garcia, but as your listeners may or may not know, he's now going to the House of Representatives, Chuy Garcia is. Right. So the, the challenger from last time will not be around to take him on again. And there is something accurate in that there is not a clear challenger who would have the mantle of carrying on the progressive movement against Emmanuel. Karen Lewis, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, 
was also mulling a run against him in 2015, but she was sidelined uh, with a brain tumor in late 2014, I believe. So she's not around either, and so it's not clear who it's going to be. There's Troy LaRavier, but there's also about a dozen total candidates who have so far announced, and we might see more coming. Some of them would be to his left. Uh, others would be to his right, Gary McCarthy, the police chief, who uh, Emmanuel dismissed uh, when the Laquan McDonald revelations came out. It's also thrown his hat in the ring. So he's going to be, there will be challengers that will be both to his left and to his right. I would say that there's not anybody yet who I would say today uh, would certainly be able to, to beat uh, whoever, you know, who, who would put forward a credible challenge from the left and, and could win against whoever the more establishment centrist neoliberal candidate is that they run for, for next year. The question I really want to ask you and to kind of go into, you know, what the teacher strike accomplished there, not just for Chicago, but literally for the country, because we've seen a year now of the very effective red state teacher strike. And now as a L.A. unified teacher strike is imminent with the 98 percent, you know, strike vote to go ahead on strike. That doesn't mean that they're immediately going to go on strike, but everybody believes they will. And maybe next year, Oakland teachers will join them. All of them, you know, go back to the Chicago teacher strike as some sort of either harbinger or beginning of reviving the strike weapon and, and winning from it. So I wanted you to actually talk about that struggle slightly and to say what you think came from it, apart from what I've just mentioned, because this goes to Rahm Emanuel's ability to not win against the teachers, but then to go ahead and close so many schools that it really raises the question of whether it you know, wiped out the achievement, or some of the achievement, at least, of the teachers' strikes. Yeah, that's right. I think that if we're being sober about what the Chicago Teachers Union has accomplished. They've certainly had more losses than victories under Rahm Emanuel. You, you mentioned the most obvious one, the, the massive school closings, but just round after round of budget cuts and layoffs, and it's all kept coming. Even his re-election, I mean, no one was expecting him to go into a runoff last time around, but he still did win his re-election campaign, which was a loss for the Chicago Teachers Union. But you know, there's a few things to say about what they accomplished. I mean, one is that they showed that you can use, in the public sector, teachers specifically, educators, can use militancy, can use the strike weapon to not just shut down the schools, but bring together a, a broad coalition of community groups and parents and other unions and really form a broad anti-austerity coalition in the city, which is the real legacy of the Chicago Teachers Union's strike and and before that, the change of leadership that they had in a more left-wing and militant direction in 2010. Since that time, they have become the anchor of the opposition to Emanuel and to austerity. And so that's a really important development and one that people elsewhere could really learn from. And then, as you said, it showed people... You know, not just in a place like Chicago, but in L.A. and also in West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona, that the teachers could uh, go on strike and that actually they could get the public behind them. And, and that the conversation should not just be, we're getting paid badly and our conditions are bad, but we are fighting on behalf of the public. We're fighting on behalf of the working class, the people who are using our services. That's what we hear in much of the rhetoric that comes out of West Virginia or Arizona or all of these places. It's not just militancy, but it's militancy rooted in a broad concern for a, a working class agenda. Who knows where that will end? 
Yeah, and I just wanted to interject there that the one thing about the Chicago teacher strike was the way that it mobilized community as well. And if you look at the Los Angeles example as it's developing, this is going to be a strike not about wages, but it's going to be about students and class size and what kind of an education is on offer as well as, you know, the other issues that are more economic. But it's so much broader than that. And that's one of the reasons, of course, that it has a lot of public support, especially now we're 10 years after the crisis and the investment in the public has not gone up to the level that people want and expect. All right, let's go back to Chicago for a minute then. So given what you've just said, especially that the legacy will be that there's an anti-austerity coalition and that they've used militancy and the strike to get what they want and that this is incredibly important. So what else is in the political situation in Chicago that makes new things possible without ROM? In other words, you call him Mayor 1%. He clearly facilitated a lot of privatization and giveaways to private corporations, closed school. Some said even because he wanted to use those sites for development because they were in key real estate areas. So given that that now is you know, not going to be, I guess, the modus operandi, what's possible in Chicago? Well, anything is possible in <laughs> Chicago, really. I mean, well, I think it's been a few days since he announced it, but even the people who watch politics in Chicago very closely aren't really sure what's going to happen. I mean, things were very stable with him as mayor before. The city council, I I watched an interview with him last night where he was bragging about how he never lost a city council vote in seven years, which to me would should maybe give us some pause about the nature of the democratic system in (laughs) Chicago, though we haven't had any lost votes on the city council for the the mayor. The mayor got everything he wanted out of the council for seven years. I mean, the, the council really was at his beck and call. And when there was, for example, a socialist alderman, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's a member of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, Carlos refused to go along with the mayor's agenda to open up a new police academy on the city's west side. And the mayor and his aldermen who were in his, in his pocket really went all out to try to destroy Carlos because he made this one public decision against the mayor's will. So that's the kind of system that we have here, and who knows what will happen with that in the future. I mean, maybe another person who can carry out a neoliberal agenda will come along and all of the aldermen will just fall in line behind him. Or maybe that system, that way of doing business on the city council could be up in the air. There's really a wide-open sense of possibility in the city right now, because especially because there's no immediately apparent successor to him. So... As of right now, as far as I know, there's no one. All the old machine is lining up behind to you know, make sure that everything just keeps going as smoothly as it was before. It's not clear what's going to happen next. Well, Micah, you've opened it up. And, of course, we're in a very amazing political moment where left-wing challengers to traditional Democrats are holding sway from Boston to Missouri to New York and in a lot of places, and they're often women of color and others. And now you've mentioned that DSA as well, at least on the Chicago City Council, and for our listeners, they're called aldermen. Are they also called alderwomen, by the way, rather than counselors? And there's been this long tradition of one or two or three. I can think of the long role, I think, 55 years of uh, Leon Dupre, who was an independent socialist for all of those years and was an alderman. Can you talk a little bit about DSA in Chicago, which has also experienced explosive growth like everywhere else, and what influence it may have, either on city politics or, in particular, the mayoral race? 
Yeah, there are a number of candidates for aldermen who have announced who are affiliated with DSA in one way or the other. Chicago DSA hasn't voted on who it's going to endorse yet, but if I had to guess, I mean, obviously Carlos will be endorsed for his run for re-election. He'll continue to be a strong and solid voice of opposition to neoliberalism on the city council. Also, Rosana Rodriguez, who is running in the city's 33rd ward on the northwest side, a uh, Puerto Rican woman who is an educator, used to direct a community theater project, and is also a member of DSA. I imagine she will probably be endorsed. There are a couple other people who will run. So there, there will be, my guess, would be at least two DSA members will make it to Chicago City Council. And then there will probably also be a number of more progressive people who might uh, caucus with them in the city's progressive caucus and may actually have a a block of people who would be opposed to the the worst of the neoliberal agenda. As for the mayor's race, it's really hard to say. I mean, right now there's no one who is immediately obvious that someone that the DSA would want to line up behind. There are people who are certainly have a long progressive record, uh, like La Ravier, and then there's uh, a more sort of the left of Rom, but still pretty uh, neoliberal and technocratic in some ways, like uh, Tony Preckwinkle, who is the Cook County Board president, who has indicated that she might run. So that is a little more unsure. But I think at the least, we will probably see an expansion of the progressive wing defined broadly on the city council, as well as one or two or three socialist city council members, DSA members on the city council. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, Micah Utrecht, and this has been really useful. I want to kind of go out with a personal reflection from you. You say in your piece that Today and Forever Rahm Emanuel is garbage, but you also catalog, you know, your own experiences from 2011 literally to the present and all of the various times that you've covered him and tried to even interview him or, you know, not shaking his hand. And you end up saying that the personal history has left you in a daze thinking about a Chicago without Emanuel as a mayor. Maybe you'd like to just go out and talk about, like, what you think you're going to be doing next when you're not covering a Rom. Yeah, I spent the day that he announced that he wasn't running in a kind of daze. I couldn't quite focus on a lot of my daily work at Jacobin because I didn't know how to react to this. You know, I'm 30 years old, and the majority of my life after graduating college has been in a Chicago where he was the mayor. And he's such a, you know, he's such a villain. He's, he, all roads eventually led back to Rom. All roads of evil doing <laughs> led back to Rom. And so I would write about things that he was doing that were so bad in the city, but also would just try to do things like when the Cubs won the World Series, I went down to Wrigleyville and stuck a sign in front of a TV camera that said Rahm Emanuel is garbage because <laughs> I knew that at that moment he would be feeling the purest kind of joy. It would be this unalloyed happiness that he would have and thinking that everything was maybe things would start turning around for him. And then in that moment he would see on WGN, the local TV station, the sign thrust in front of the camera with all the drunk screaming cub stamps that read <laughs> Rahm Emanuel is garbage and he'd be pulled back in from his reverie. And uh, I, I don't know if that happened or not, but uh, you know, I, I did a couple things like that. Like, you know, as you mentioned, interviewing a guy who in a very funny clip, Rahm comes up to him to try to shake his hand and he just looks at Rahm's hand disgustingly and just goes, no, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not shaking your hand. And all these things, like they, they were, you know, they were funny moments, but they, they spoke to this broader level of disgust that a lot of working-class Chicagoans, and just Chicagoans in general, have with Rahm Emanuel. This is a widespread feeling in the city, even if the guy you know, won re-election. Like it's, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find people who would really 
defend this guy, as I mentioned, from the city's working class all the way up to the business class. So, uh, yeah, he played a very good villain, and it will be a little weird to not have him around being the prime villain of uh, my life in local politics. But if we know anything about you know, the neoliberal Democratic Party, my hunch is that they'll be able to come up with somebody else who will be able to carry out just as evil an agenda as Rom did. Well, Mike, I introduced you in the beginning. I said Micah Utrecht is to Rahm Emanuel, what Hunter Thompson was to Richard Nixon. I want to thank Alan Minsky for that one. But you've just said it. So, you know, you remember that Nixon said he won't be around to kick anymore. And you just said the That's same right. thing about Rahm Emanuel. But, you know, there was always the tan rested and ready with Nixon, you know, reappearing. And God forbid that just might well happen. We've run out of time, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And for the listeners, go out and look at Micah Utrecht's piece on Jacobin Magazine online. It's called Today and Forever, Rahm Emanuel is Garbage, and also pick up his book, Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. Micah is driving home as we speak, and he's the managing editor of Jacobin. Micah Utrecht, thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Chloe Watlington with us today for the first time. Chloe has just come back from Puerto Rico, and she's been writing about it. She was there in July, and she's been writing about Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria for both The Baffler and Teen Vogue, looking at the bizarre attempts to reboot the economy that, as she says in her article for The Baffler, that profess to solve problems that really aren't the problem, and then looks as well at the response from labor and student strikes against massive cuts to education at all levels. And there's a pattern here, and Chloe's going to help us unravel it. Chloe is a freelance writer, and as I said, she just returned from Puerto Rico. Her pieces, you can find them in Teen Vogue on Mutual Aid after uh, the hurricane and student strikes in Puerto Rico. And the article that's appearing in The Baffler in their special Myth of Progress issue that comes out this winter is called Tales from the Cryptos. And we're going to get her to define just what the cryptos are. There's a lot more to say about Chloe. She's an activist extraordinaire and the front book editor for a new magazine called Commune. With all of that, welcome to Beneath the Surface, Chloe. Thanks, Susie. I'm really glad to have you here. Now, the news, of course, yesterday is that, no surprise, the death toll in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria just last year was not 64, as Trump bragged about and said we did a fantastic job, but has now been put at 2,795. Harvard researchers report that they think that the toll is closer to 5,000. But you were there on the ground, and I'd like to just begin with that. So what did you see and what did people think? And especially if if you ask them that question about how many people died and, and how much has been done to restore electricity and everything else on the island. Yeah, so people on the ground have always rejected that number of 64 as far as storm-related deaths goes. That never sounded right to anybody. So activists leaned more towards the Harvard number, which is about, like you said, 4,600 or 5,000. And it was funny, I was just watching this video where the governor, Roseo, tries to finally take responsibility, but he still won't blame Trump. And and Trump is the one who said, we've done 10. We've done a 10 job. We're so (laughs) great. Um, But nobody on the ground saw 
a 10 job. And what the governor is saying is that they just weren't prepared for a a magnitude category four hurricane, which has hit. They were prepared for a category one hurricane. One? And this is, (laughs) this is just a, and that's about the response that they gave. So, yeah, activists lean more towards a 4,000 death count. And one of the reasons is because last year there was also a 29% increase in suicides. And there's been no accounting for the correlation of this when everybody knows it's a direct correlation to the debt, the, the chronic joblessness, the exodus, the lack of health care, and the mental health support, especially in the interior. And I want to go through a lot of those, especially as you do in your article, the exodus, but just one other thing, and that is that in the Harvard researchers think that many of the doctors who reported deaths did not put storm-related. But, you know, it was clear that so many people died because of medical neglect, which didn't mean that there weren't necessarily doctors, but they couldn't get to hospitals. Hospitals weren't up. There weren't medicines and all of those sort of things. So, you know, whether or not they're going to invent a new category to describe catastrophic conditions that meant that people with chronic illnesses like diabetes or lung diseases could not be treated on any kind of regular basis. And do you know, I mean, just before we get into some of the other things, did you look at any or talk to people about the situation in the hospitals and clinics around the island? It is a huge part of the death toll, just that these hospitals didn't have like everyone else, the electricity or the other public services that they needed to adequately respond to the disaster. Okay, so let's move into sort of the background to all of this. And in your article, you go through and start to look at economic patterns. I think you say that the relationship of the United States to Puerto Rico, and for those who don't know it, yes, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's a state that doesn't have, it has voice but not vote, unless the Puerto Ricans, you know, like young people, go to school in the United States. They can't vote when they're on the island, but they can vote when they're here. It's a peculiar relationship. But on the other hand, the relationship that you describe economically, from at least from the 50s or 40s on, is, you know, one attempt after another to reboot the economy, restructure the economy. So maybe we should go back even to Operation Bootstrap and look at the economic patterns that you describe in your article on the cryptos. Sure. Yeah. Operation Bootstrap radically transformed the island and restructured the economy, as you say. It was a project of Luis Munez Marin, who was a part of the Partido Popular Democrático, which ironically was a, had an independista base, and it like ran under the motto of Pan Tierra Libertad. But he was the one who engineered Operation Bootstrap, and that was his kind of lasting legacy, was this form of industrialization by invitation. So he thought that by inviting foreign capital onto the island, that those industries would create an economy big enough and expansive enough to make it so that everyone could profit from it. So his first step towards that goal was in 1947 with the passage of the Industrial Incentives Act, and it made it so that U.S. manufacturers didn't have to pay property or municipal taxes on the income that they earned in Puerto Rico. And obviously, because like you said, it's a, it's a U.S. territory But because of that Commonwealth status that Munez gave it, they were also exempted from duties and restrictions on imports into the U.S. And they they never were subject to federal minimum wage laws. So at the time of Operation Bootstrap and through the 50s and the 60s, the minimum wage in Puerto Rico was always about 20% of what it was in the U.S. Now it's $5.88 and even lower for 
student workers. So this kind of cheap labor and the incentive that Operation Bootstrap offered made it kind of open for business for this capital investment. And the first thing that came was light manufacturing looking for cheap labor. So they made like toys, T-shirts, cigarettes, rum. And without a doubt, the economy grew during this period. And certainly there was some increases in the standard of living and literacy rates rose substantially, this kind of thing. And you can see it in the traces of the architecture. Like when I was walking around Puerto Rico, it was almost like this landscape of like mid-century ephemera where there was this 1950s hope written into every building next to the kind of, you know, agrarian imperialist sugar industry world with the big pillars and things. But there was this kind of promise of U.S. investment through this tropicalismo, which was a kind of like pale colors and curved edge. The Hilton Caribbean is the best example of this. And actually Brock Pierce, who we might get into, yeah. is trying to buy that building, which I find so terrifyingly symbolic. But all that's to say that during that time, while the standard of living did increase and there were these different projects that constructed a lot of buildings during the post-war period, their unemployment rate never dropped below 10%. So while the factories supplied a lot of labor, there were never enough jobs for all the people who needed them. Right. But I thought, by the way, that there was a period when they did mandate the same minimum wage as in the United States at around $7 an hour. You said that it's at five eighty-eight now. But it was my understanding that the minimum wage in, in Puerto Rico, while it's a minimum wage here, it's a maximum wage there or the prevailing wage. And so that... It's, as you say, probably people earn less than that. Many do not go above it, including teachers and university professors. Did you find that to be the case? Yeah, that could be true, certainly. And certainly I saw plenty of teachers buying their own school supplies at Walmart, for example, and having to spend a lot of their income on their profession. You really talk a lot about the cryptos projects and, and couch it in the terms of things that have happened since Operation Bootstrap, yet another attempt to reboot the economy and filled with wild dreams. And probably, I think, as you say in your article, Chloe Wallington, that it's the, the tax haven in a way that people can just go there and do this. There's a ready and willing workforce, educated. Mm-hmm. So what are these cryptos projects? And, and for those many out there who have no idea what you're talking about, can you define it? <laughs> yeah, certainly. So You might have heard about it through the New York Times, which called them cryptopians and showed an image of of four or five men on the rooftop. of. See, I think of Krypton and Superman when you say that, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. They're they're certainly not superheroes. Uh, (laughs) But I call them cryptos and drop the cryptopian thing off of it because I don't find anything utopian about them. And another person who talks about them is Naomi Klein and her Battle for Paradise, and she refers to them a lot as people who are are secessionists. To me, what I found in the night that I spent hanging out with them is that they're capitalists, and they're capitalists in a potentially high-growth industry, and they're capitalizing on these kinds of tax breaks that Operation Bootstrap started, which expired in 1996 through, through 2006, but now they have new ones, which are known as Act 20 and Act 22, which are tax exemption policies that make it very easy for you to show up and start a business with either five employees or make a donation of $5,000 to a nonprofit in um, 
Puerto Rico. And actually, the easiest place to find out information about Act 20 and 22 is Sotheby's real estate website, because these are the kind of people who are looking to come get this kind of return on their investment. Is Um, this also part of what you said about buying the Caribe Hotel, or is that something completely apart? it, It is, it is. And the distinction I'd like to make about these guys other than that they're just buying up hotels and different properties, they're, they're starting these companies based on their assumptions of the island and what the island needs. So one of the companies that they're starting is, is Dronezon, so yeah. think Amazon plus drones. That's drone delivery for Amazon. And they've already worked through the, with the FAA to engineer the capability to have drones deliver these 20-pound packages from the airport to Arecibo. Uh-huh. And then the the second company that they're making is developing black boxes for drones to serve the purposes of black boxes for commercial use and drones for commercial use. So they're creating these like industries of legitimization where the new technologies get brought into these bigger corporations like Amazon and the use of black boxes for storing data on blockchain, which is then legitimizing the industry of blockchain. Chain. Yeah, and now go back so, one second, Chloe Watlington, and explain, because I think in your article you talk about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. So just a, a quick, you know, <laughs> dirty definition. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the quick, dirty definition of blockchain, which is certainly not my area of expertise, it's this kind of invention that allows for a decentralized internet, and it's sort of a peer-to-peer way of distributing digital information so that it's copied and not stored. Got it. So yeah. calling it an immutable ledger. So kind of backstage to these technologies, which are kind of changing the political and economic systems we're forced to engage with. And the jury's out whether these can be used for more good or evil or what their deal is. But the problem in Puerto Rico is chronic unemployment, right? And they're creating job replacement technology. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> there's a big disconnect there. And I think that their impact is a little bit bigger than the cryptopian articles that people have been publishing yeah, I should predicted. just say, Chloe Watlington, for the listeners, you have to wait for the winter issue of The Baffler. The article is called Tales from the Cryptos. And there is an ironic tone throughout to it. And you're, you're hearing a little bit of it from Chloe right now because she talks about the lack of basic infrastructure. But boy, these guys really want to make sure that there's good Wi-Fi. And that should tell you something. But the other thing that you just mentioned disconnects, and this will take us into your writings on Student Labor Alliance and student strike is that one of the things that, you know, in talking to the, I guess, the cryptos and the rebooters, is that they think that there's no need to have so many schools. That's a waste and that they should just close schools because now there's good roads. And so people don't need to have a neighborhood school that they can walk to. And at the same time, you just talked about like establishing this new dronezon, which, you know, I assume that they think that they need to deliver packages on the island via drones because the roads aren't reliable. Is there some disconnect there or am I missing that? Yeah, there is some disconnect there. It's, it's just that they're following this pattern of investment, which won't change anything about Puerto Rico on the scale at which Puerto Rico needs to be changed. So it won't be, it won't be building roads. It won't be helping these schools, which are under such an intense austerity crunch. It won't help that the sewer overflows, whether or not you, you can drop toilet paper from the sky with a drone. Uh, so, yeah, they're just creating their own new forms of investment, which are leaking cash to big corporations like Amazon. And, and I think in a way sort of, too, acting as a bit of a distraction from what is really the biggest threat to 
Puerto Rico, which is these huge hedge funds that created the debt and now are managing it through the La Junta and the increasing pressure of a more conservative and racist Congress, which has total control over them, but they have no representation in. Right. It's, and then, it's a bad combo all around. And the fact that the hurricane, which hit so hard, and as you have just said, the island was not prepared for anything, you know, close to the level of catastrophe that it visited upon them, that this came on the heels of a really let's call it catastrophic debt crisis that was created by hedge funds who had their day, you know, with the economy there, which, you know, starts with, as you, the person you spoke to, the cryptocurrency guy, that they see the big problem in bloated public services or public services that they could just privatize and make money off of, and that this had already been going on before the hurricane hit. And there was no real disaster preparedness. And that's also the issue. So you get the president of the United States going there and throwing paper towel rolls to people and feeling good about himself. And you just mentioned, you know, whether or not, you know, the drones could drop toilet paper on people. And it's kind of creating this image that is so horrific and dystopian. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the school's crisis, the education crisis, and the fact that students have taken to the streets as a result. Sure. Yeah. So... The education crisis started way before the hurricane. Specifically, in 2017, they announced that they were going to cut the funding, the federal funding to University of Puerto Rico by $450 million. And then as a result, the university agreed that, that they would make up for that by raising tuition to about double the cost of a credit for each student. And as we already talked about with like low wages, this just was like completely untenable for the students. And there is a history of student strikes and on the island there was, you know, going all the way back to 1948 and the 1960s against the Vietnam War. But also in 2010, they had a, a student movement that was oh, really rivaled the student occupation movement that went down the coast of California. Mm. So in April 2017, they announced this plan and the university in San Juan, Rio Piedras, which is the kind of biggest UPR campus, went on strike and had an occupation. And shortly thereafter, thousands of students came to an assembly from all the different campuses, and all 11 campuses voted that the, unanimously that they would go on strike and occupy their universities too. And the universities were barricaded shut for many months by the students, and they had a ton of support because the, the situation with chronic unemployment has made it really difficult to organize as workers. 1% of the private sector are organized within unions. So that The exception is kind of like within hotel industries, beverage industries. But most people, you know, the working class is ever shrinking and competition is ever higher because it's very hard to find a job. So the problem of austerity, which the students made their demand that day when they decided to all go on strike, was one that resonated with everybody. Well, and so they... they can you go just go back support. one second? So the the workers on the campuses and around, I guess, in related industries are not part of the public sector. Is that what you're saying? Or they are? And you said one... Per, I just want you to repeat because I wasn't sure I got that. One percent unionization? One percent? So That's what I've heard wow. within the private sector. Yes. That's yeah. what Professor Rafael Bernabe, that's a figure he gave me. Yeah, I'm sure he's uh, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the public sector, which is one of the biggest employers, is is not able to unionize in any large capacity. And it's it's certainly not organized towards any workers' movement. And so, on the other hand, this is not... Uh, it doesn't stop worker militancy, though, right? The fact there's not a huge amount of... Or there's a tiny amount of union no. density. Okay. No, absolutely not. There's tons of activity. And... For example, the May Days in the last three years have had thousands and thousands of people coming, calling a general strike. There's two kinds of strikes that happen a lot in Puerto Rico. One is a paro, which is like a stoppage, a work stoppage, which has a definitive amount of time, and then there's an indefinite amount of strike. And the general strikes are generally these indefinite amount of strikes that get put down very repressively by the police. That's what happened in every May Day the last few years. Wow. So, okay, amazingly, we don't have very much time left. And I want you in the final moments to just kind of give an overview of your thoughts on, let's say, the crypto utopians facing, let's call it student labor protest and strikes, and the problems they see versus the problems that people on the island actually live with. Sure. Yeah, so the Cryptopians just have their own vision of, of how to combat things, and they I think that they think that means growing the elite sector, so have hiring 8 to 10 engineers to work for their Dronazon or their Red Cat, which is the name of the Black Box program, whereas the people of Puerto Rico have created amazing mutual aid networks, and the character of the crisis has just demanded building community power and mutual aid networks. There's a long history of this in the 1960s with squatting and this movement called Rescates, and so now that that's happening again. And all across the island, you see these mutual aid centers or CAM, Centro de Apoyo Mutua. Uh, I went to see one in Caguas, which was a really wide open space, very intergenerational, three stories, a huge, beautiful garden. And this kind of solidarity work, just in a general way, it gives you a bigger sense of, of humanity than, than the other projects do, especially, obviously, than the cryptos do. But then even, yeah, and that kind of thing is the sort of necessary kind of transformation that society needs. But I will say that it is an imminent threat that Puerto Rico does not just get developed in the name of hedge fund and La Junta and these new technology projects. And I think I just read uh, Battle for Paradise and many by Naomi Klein and many people around the island want, told me that while they thought the shock doctrine theory and the theory of shock applied to their experience in the hurricane, it doesn't really apply to their experience of the kind of extractive capitalist tax exemption based economic development, which I have described, which has been going on since the 1940s. Right. Well, okay, we really have to end it here. But I really like the way that you ended your article for the baffler, Chloe Watlington. And you said that you had this sense that there were a group of adult children being left on the island unsupervised, treating the land and people around them like it's Sim City. (laughs) And that's, you know, wow. But now those people are going to encounter, as you say, the militancy of students, workers, and the rest of the population who are unemployed, who have real demands that they can't possibly fulfill. So it it is a story that's unfinished. 
Absolutely. Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Chloe Watlington. We're going to follow this story, so we'll call you back. But just to let the listeners know that you can find Chloe's writings at Teen Vogue and also coming up in the Baffler special issue for the winter. And that article is called Tales from the Cryptos. And Chloe's joined us from Chicago today, where she continues in her freelance writing and activism. Thanks for joining us today, Chloe. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.